to worship Him. And if you're joining us for the live stream, we're glad to have you with us as well. A couple of things I want to quickly mention before we begin. Uh, firstly, is that I will not be here next Sunday. Uh, family and I will be uh, on vacation, and in my stead, uh, uh, Brother James Martino will be preaching uh, for you next Sunday service. So I would encourage you just to be uh, praying for him as he also is preparing uh, himself, preparing his heart, and preparing the word that the Lord has put in his heart to share with you next week. Um, and uh, additionally, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was that uh, when I do get back, which will be, and so I'll be here for uh, April 2nd, and that will be Palm Sunday. So it's kind of hard to believe that Easter is right around the corner. And with that being said, I want to make sure that you knew some things beforehand. Uh, so, uh, so Palm Sunday is on that, on the April 2nd. Later on, on that Friday, we'll have a Good Friday service here at the church, and it'll be at 6 p.m., and that usually runs about 45 minutes or so. And then that Sunday, we'll have Easter. Uh, so we'll be focusing on the death of Jesus Christ for sinners on Good Friday, and then on Easter Sunday, focusing on resurrection, celebrating on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And so I would encourage you now to be thinking about and praying about um, inviting others uh, to come. It's a, usually a really good time for families to come together and also provides a good opportunity to invite people to uh, the church uh, as well. And so in, I would encourage you to think about that, pray about that, and, uh, and pray for the Lord to, to save uh, those that you might bring, which is a, a, a family member who doesn't know the Lord Jesus or a co-worker, whoever that might be. So with all that, I see my wife's hand go up. Sure. Good. Um, well, uh, let's go before the Lord and, and let us worship. Uh, we gather together because Christ saves us into a community of believers. And as a community of believers, we are called to make much of Jesus Christ and we're called to gather together because God intends to use it as a means of grace for us to draw from. And he intends for us to come together to also serve one another, to, to worship together, to sing, to pray, and to listen to his word, and so let us draw before the Lord and let us worship. Amen. Church, let's stand. Our call to worship is from Psalm 145, and it, it, it says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, amen, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works, amen. God engages our hearts. 
may Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. We ask not for ourselves, but for your renown. The cross has saved us, so we pray.
has given.
continue worship as we sing this song. One moment. This song, uh, I just wanna, I just wanna share real quick. The song's very wordy, but it's very deep, and I just want us to really meditate as we sing it. So let's do this chat, just that. Amen. Speak, oh Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word and take your truth planted deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith speak O Lord and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory teach us Lord, full obedience, holy reverence to humility, and test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity, and cause our faith Majestic love and authority, words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. morning prepare our hearts lord to receive your food as we just sang 
Lord, remind us this morning. Remind us, Lord, of your faithfulness and of the grace, Lord, that you continually provide us day after day. The mercies that we have received this morning, new mercies. So, Father, thank you as a, as a church. God, thank you for the salvation, for the, for the gift of faith, Lord, and salvation that you have placed in us. I pray, God, that we may continue in fellowship, continue in worship, now into you, prayer and in your word. May you speak, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, church, you may be seated. At this time, we'll be uh, dismissing our children to their classrooms as well. Before we pray, I'm going to read from Psalm 51. These parts of Psalm 51. The Psalms are a wonderful, it's a wonderful book because they contain what can be many prayers for the saints to use. And one reason in particular is because you have in the Psalms many Psalms of lament which are sort of a, a crying out to the Lord, either because of injustice, either because of affliction and suffering, either because of many different things. But the thing about Christian lament, and we should use the Psalms to that end, to sort of voice our cries before the Lord when we don't have, when we can't find the words but the thing about Christian lament is that Christian lament is the pathway to trust. Psalm 51 is a prayer of lament, but also a prayer of confession as well. So I want to read some portions of this passage for us and want to lead us into a time of essentially lamenting and confession of our sins, but also to trust in the great grace and forgiveness that we have in God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Psalm 51, verse 1, says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that, I may be so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Man, let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Lord, we pray to you as the God who is always abounding in grace. We pray to the God in heaven of whom the scriptures testify is full of faithfulness and who renews his mercy towards his children every single day. 
Lord, and it is because your saints can continue to draw from the bank of your mercy and it never run out that we can come confidently before you and acknowledge our sin to you. Lord, some of us have perhaps sinned against neighbor or sinned against a co-worker or friend. Some of us have perhaps sinned against our spouse or our children or a loved one. And Lord, you, you know all things. You know everything we do. You know everything we say. You know every single one of our thoughts. You know the deepest corners of our hearts. And yet we still come before you and we acknowledge our sin before you and we confess that our sins are first and foremost against you who are who is a, a holy God, a perfect God, a God who is dazzling in white without, without wrinkle or spot, a God who is perfect in all his ways, a God who is and will be justified in bringing judgment upon the world for iniquity and transgression and sin. Lord, there may be some here who are perhaps afraid of confessing their sins before you out of shame, out of fear that you might perhaps cast them away or distance yourself from them. There may be some here who are filled perhaps with remorse and great regret over sins that they have done and have yet to come before you in confession of those sins. Lord, but we, we come to you because you are a God who is full of mercy and grace, who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, we desire a deeper conviction over our sins, but even as, our, as we develop this greater and deeper conviction, Lord, give to us a, a, a greater and clearer vision of your mercy and grace. Lord, your scripture promises to us that you will not cast off any of those who come before you in confession of their sins, that you will not turn them away, but you welcome all sinners to find mercy and grace and love in Christ. Lord, we come before you this morning acknowledging that that while we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are not yet perfected. There are struggles, there are temptations we face, but the gospel reminds us that through our faith in you, we have been saved, we have been forgiven, we have been sanctified, we have been purified, we have been made saints. 
and how wonderful that is, Lord, to know that we still struggle with sin at times, that you still call us your dear and beloved children. So even as we come before you in the acknowledgement and confession of our sins, we come to you as our Father, knowing that you hear us and knowing that you will continue to be loving towards your children. And Lord, we long for the day when we will be perfected, when we will receive the glorification of our bodies, when we will no longer be able to sin. We look forward to the day when we will no longer even want or desire to sin. Father, help us now to draw near to you. We pray for those whose hearts have been perhaps hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that you would soften those hearts even this moment. That you would remind them of the great grace that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for those, Lord, who have yet to come to know the Lord Jesus who may be here in this very room. Lord, that they might receive sight to be able to behold the great love and grace that is in the gospel of Christ. We pray for those who feel a sense of distance from you because of their sins, Lord, that you would draw near to them and that they would draw near to you. Lord, for those who feel the heaviness of sin, for those who feel a sense of shame and sorrow and who feel conviction over their sins, Lord, would you restore to them, would you restore to your people the joy of salvation. There is nothing greater than to have your sins forgiven. Lord, help us by your Spirit to walk in that joy. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us. Thank you for the grace that we can sing about this morning. We trust you, the Father, as our gracious and loving Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, 
and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, your word tells us in Isaiah how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, who proclaim peace and declare that the God reigns. And Father, I pray that my feet would be those kind of feet. I pray that you would use my voice to declare the peace of God, to declare that Christ Jesus reigns over the life of his people, and I pray, Father, that you would help us, help your people, your children, your household, your body to to receive the good word, the good food of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we finished last week Peter's sermon during Pentecost. And now verses 42 to 47 show us what the preaching of the gospel produces. There are many things in the world that have sort of this harmonizing effect between many different people. Like you can have different people from different walks of life coming to unison, playing to the same beat, to the same tune, chanting to the same things, whether they're good things or bad things. Many things have that kind of harmonizing effect, even in social media, which is a sort of disembodied communication, or as Neil Postman would say, ghost-to-ghost communication. Even in the world of social media, there are many things that have this harmonizing effect between individuals, no matter where they live, no matter what country they live. People can have this sort of this coming together to pursue the same ideal, or looking to achieve the same things. After the preaching of the gospel by Peter here during Pentecost, we see something else in the world that has this harmonizing effect between individuals, and there's nothing quite like it in all the world, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this gospel harmonizes people, brings them together, and is because, first and foremost, that they are harmonized or united to Jesus Christ. Verse 41 says, Those who received the word, or Peter's words, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then these individuals were brought into a community, they became a community, and they devoted themselves to certain things. To work through this passage, there's there's at least four things that characterizes the kind of community that the gospel produces. But before we get to that, there's three, I think, important things to remember, three things that really deserve more time to sort of unpack, but three things that I think is helpful to remember as we work through the passage. The first thing is that it's something I already mentioned, and that is that the gospel, let us remember, is what produces this kind of community. It doesn't come from man. It doesn't come from kind of some, any program or some kind of system. The gospel produces 
the kind of community that we read in verses 42 to 47. Secondly, it is the gospel preached that produced this kind of community. The Lord saw fit that through the preaching of the gospel that this community would be birthed into existence. And then thirdly, that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, we see the work of the Spirit of God, if you remember, coming down, being poured out upon believers. And there's the Spirit of God through which that Peter got up and proclaimed the gospel. It is the Spirit of God that brought conviction upon 3,000 souls to turn their lives to Jesus Christ and submit to Him as Lord. And it is also the work of the Spirit of God that we see in the life of this community that we read in verses 42 to 47. So what kind of community that we, do we see here in this passage? Firstly, we see a devoted community. It says they devoted themselves, firstly, to the apostles' teaching. Teaching of what? But the, the, the apostles were not going to teach just about anything when Jesus commissioned Peter to feed his lambs and feed his sheep. He was not commanding him to just feed him his opinions and his whatever views that he has about the world. But no, he instructed Peter to feed his people primarily with the word of God, to teach Jesus' people. There's a teaching of instruction, the teaching of doctrine, the teaching of instruction, life application, we would have expected, we, would have, could have, we could rightly assume that the apostles were teaching this new community all the things concerning Christ. Because if you know who Christ is, that will determine then how you live your life. And the opposite is also true. That even if a person might say that, well, I believe in Jesus, but they walk in unrepentant sin, well, that says a great deal about what they actually believe about Jesus. There's something wrong in understanding about who Christ is. But we must know who Christ is first before we know how to live rightly for Christ. And so we could rightly assume that they began to teach them all things concerning Christ. We would probably expect that they taught them what Jesus had taught them on the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps walk them through Jesus' parables. Luke 22, or rather 24, verse 44, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So we could expect that the apostles probably took the people of God to the Psalms, for example, and showed them how the Psalms point to Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. John Calvin had once said, the doctrine is the soul of the church. Doctrine is the bond of brotherly fellowship amongst us and does also set open unto us the gate of God so that we may call upon him. It is doctrine that strengthens the bonds within the church and her fellowship. And this isn't just aimed at intellectual understanding, as important as that is. 
but it is the application of the understanding, the application of this theology, the application of this instruction. The other thing that we see about their devotion to the apostles' teaching is that this early, these community of believers were essentially devoted to learning. They wanted to learn. They wanted to understand. They wanted to be taught. And it's not that you cannot learn elsewhere. One of the advantages of having technology is that you can go online and you can see YouTube videos and you can take classes online and learn and grow in that way and praise God for that. The downside is that, that any crazy person with a false theology can also go on YouTube and share some false things as well. But I think what we see here, and I think we can also point, I, I think the New Testament also makes this case as well, is that the church is the primary school of instruction for right living to the glory of God in Christ. The church is the primary school of instruction for right living to the glory of God in Christ. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We also read that they, they, they also devoted themselves to the fellowship. This is an interesting psalm that speaks to the fellowship. I think paints for us an interesting picture of what the fellowship of the church is like or how the Lord blesses the kind of fellowship that one should find in a community of believers. In Psalm 133, it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Right, interesting description of what fellowship and unity is like amongst God's people. I mean, how's your unity in your church? Oh, it's great. It's like the oil running down the beard of Aaron. The psalmist says, or the oil running down the beard of Edwin. I think has the longest beard in this room. What does it mean? Oil, right? Oil in the Old Testament signifies different things, right? That consecration, anointed, set apart for the Lord. Oil would also have had this wonderful, nice fragrance to it. And the picture that the psalmist gives us of the oil running down from the head of Aaron to his beard, to his robes, is showing us how the oil is overflowing. Right? It's not limited. It's abundant. And so what's this telling us about unity and applying this the psalm to the fellowship of believers, the Christian community, what it's saying, what we can learn, is that the fellowship amongst believers is, is holy. It's consecrated by God. It's set apart. It's something that the Lord intends to bless. That it is pleasant. That it is attractional. And that there's plenty to go around. There is room to grow. There isn't sort of this limited quantity. No, we only go to this amount. This is the max and no more. We can't have any more in. No, we, there's plenty of room to add more. And it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on mountains 
the mountains of Zion, the smaller mountains of Zion. So this dew, what does dew do from Mount Zion? It freshens the ground, causing it to produce. So in the same way, I think we can also say that Christian fellowship is also intended to be a means of nourishment for believers. That when God's people come together, that God intends to use it to, to nourish you, to revitalize you, to strengthen you, so that you may also continue to produce and grow more. Christian brotherhood is like dew falling on the soil of the heart, causing it to bear fruit. Church in Matthew Henry says that it moistens the heart and makes it tender and fit to receive the good seed of the word. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And this means table fellowship. It could have also included taking communion together. But it mainly means, it's mainly pointing to table fellowship, sitting down and having meals together. That's what it's getting at. And this idea is actually, I think, quite important to the Bible. And you see this a lot in the Old Testament. So, for example, when God takes his people through the Exodus out of slavery in Egypt, he begins to give them commandments and laws. He also institutes for them feasts, opportunities throughout the year where they should come together, celebrate, eat, to celebrate the Lord to consider what God has done, to thank the Lord for his generosity. In the Old Testament, hospitality was incredibly important, especially towards strangers and inviting them into the home and having a meal with them. If you consider the New Testament, right, what did Jesus often do? Right, Jesus sat down to eat with sinners. He ate with them. The New Testament also describes the kingdom of heaven as a great banquet. So there is something important that I think the Bible is trying to help us to understand when it comes to table fellowship. Consider this, I find it to be a, quite a peculiar passage related to this point. Exodus 24.9, it says there, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, up to the mountain of God to meet with God, and they saw the God of Israel, which is interesting because God does not have a form, but theologians consider this to be sort of a, a theophany, that is, a manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of God, even though they were before the very presence of God. But instead, they beheld God, and it tells us that they ate and drank. They sat down in the presence of the Lord there on the mountain, and they ate and drank. In other words, they engaged in some table fellowship in the presence of the Lord. Or consider how Revelation 3.20 says concerning, or how it describes believing in the gospel, believing in Christ. It says there, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. So Jesus likens faith, believing, trusting in Jesus as 
his being welcomed into the table of your heart where he sits down with you to eat with you. That's because sitting down and eating with someone communicates a kind of intimacy. It communicates a kind of intentionality. The thing about this kind of table fellowship and hospitality is that when you have someone over to your home, say for a meal, one of the things that it communicates is that you are providing for someone, your guest, namely, providing them for something that they do not have to work for. Right? Because as the host, you're sort of absorbing the cost. Right? You're taking it upon yourself, unless you have like obviously like a potluck meal that's different. But when you have someone over and you tell them you don't have to bring anything, just come, sit, and eat, you're providing something that they didn't have to work for. Right? And what distinguishes this kind of Christian table fellowship from the kind of fellowship that the world is capable of and does is that it's, it's the motivation. Right? We do these things because we know that we have been richly provided for, because we have been given much that we did not have to work for. But Jesus freely gives to those who believe and trust in him, such as forgiveness of sins, mercy, the gift of the Holy Spirit of God, eternal life with Christ. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread or table fellowship, and they also devoted themselves to the prayers. So they prayed, and they probably most likely includes liturgical prayers. They probably would have recited often, regularly, the Lord's Prayer. So they were a praying community. So what we see here also is that, remember, this is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. What we see here is that they are already taking advantage of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, when Peter began to preach, and he quoted these passages in the book of Joel, talking about the Spirit of God in these last days, that prophecy is intended to communicate how the people of God will have access to the Lord. And so here they are, being filled with the Spirit through their faith in Jesus Christ, praying to the Lord, no longer needing sort of a high priest or an intermediary to intercede on their behalf because they can go directly to the throne of grace by just simply praying to the Lord. So we see that these Christians were marked by prayer, that this early church was marked by prayer. Prayer became essential for their life. And if we think of prayer as simply, one somebody had actually written, if we think of prayer as simply having a conversation with God, then we will probably struggle with more, more with why we should do it than if we think of it as something as essential as eating and breathing. Prayer certainly, to some degree, is conversation with the Lord, but it's certainly more than that, and as believers, it has to be more than that. Right? Just think, is prayer to you as essential as eating and breathing? Jonathan Edwards once said that prayer proves the reality of one's faith. 
Prayer is what characterizes the life of faith, including the life of the church. And the thing about prayer is that almost anything can drive you to prayer. Anything. There's many reasons throughout the day that can lead a person to prayer, whether it's suffering, whether it's temptation, whether it's affliction, whether it's the suffering of others, whether it's answered prayer, whether it's having your needs provided for, whether it's just looking outside and looking at creation, just about anything can drive us immediately to prayer. Prayer is one of the defining marks of a Christian. So they devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They devoted themselves. That is, they were all in. They persisted in these things. They persevered in these things. They continued in these things without giving up. And the thing about devotion and being devoted to something is that you're never casual about something that you're devoted to. Right, devotion and, and, and being casual towards something, they're like completely opposite. But when you're devoted to something, you don't treat it casually because you're persevering in it. You're engaged in it. You're all in. I remember Peter was making the case that he said in verse 17, as he quotes from this prophecy in Joel that these are the last days. That these are the, this is the messianic age. That since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the world has transitioned to these last days. And then we see the things that the, these believers, that this community of believers devoted themselves to in these last days. Hebrews 10.25 commands us to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, as we see that at any moment Christ Jesus could come and that we inch closer and closer each day to that day, we have to continue to meet with one another and continue to encourage one another because, precisely because we are in these last days. Then the question becomes, how is your devotion? Are you living like you are in the last days? Take the example of the early church. They lived in light of the reality that they were living in the Messianic age. And because Christ Jesus could come at any moment, they devoted themselves to these things. Are you living under the weight of that reality? So this community was a devoted community. Second, this Community was a sharing community. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this community of believers, they provided for one another. 
And what we see immediately is that this early church was characterized by this, this attachment to material possessions because they freely gave up some of their things in order to help others in the church who had needs. So nobody was selfish with their, their possessions. It says they had all things in common. Not talking about their personalities, but they talked about their personal belongings, their material possessions. They're saying, no, it's, they freely lent out things to the people of God for those who had needs. 1 John 3.16 tells us, By this we know love, that Christ Jesus laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The gospel produces a love for believers, and love always requires action. And what drives that love to action is Christ's love and action, namely his dying on the cross for sinners. And it is Christ's love for sinners that, that grounds Christ-saturated and Christ-driven love. And so they met each other's needs. They disattached themselves from material possessions and they sold many of their belongings so that they might have money to be able to give to those in need. So these early believers, there were many who had a lot of things. There were many who did not have very much, many of which who probably had was a struggle to get by day by day. And some with much would be, were able to provide resources to help those who were in need. So what we see here is that these believers were not individualists who prioritized their own individual needs, but the needs of the community were their top priority. And what we have here then is the biblical picture of a people who give and contribute before they receive. When I was younger and engaged, I had... I had Nissan Altima with like these 20-inch chrome rims. I was very vain back then. And I, and I sold them because I was getting ready for the wedding. Right? And many of us, like, this is not a strange experience to us. Many of us have been through similar experiences where we're sort of like barter or negotiate with ourselves and consider like, okay, what am I trying to achieve? What am I trying to accomplish? What do I want? And what do I need to sacrifice or give up in order to have this one thing or to get to where I want to be? Then the question then becomes, how far are we willing to go to help God's people? What would we what we, we, would we be willing to give up to help the household of Christ? What would you be willing to part with for the sake of the brethren? Or even just consider, what are some of the things in your life that you're unwilling to part with if you knew that 
doing so would help someone else in need. Because whatever it is that that thing is that you might be unwilling to part with, that parts with, that could be an idol in your life. Now, I don't think what we have here is a bunch of believers who even sold their homes so that they could settle in the streets and live their lives in poverty. I don't think that's the idea here. I don't think that's, the, that's what it's trying to drive at. But this was a community that, put the prior, that prioritized the needs of others. In order to do that, they were willing to let go of certain things, whether it's time or energy or resources, in order to help those in need. And so they were a sharing community. Thirdly, they were an assembling community. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means assembly. So inherent in its definition of the church is assembly. That is, a people who come together, who assemble together. Right? You can't have a church that never assembles together. Right? You can't have sort of a, 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 a Zoom kind of church because that's not an assembling together. And, like, and also, you can't say, one cannot say that you belong to a church if you never assemble with the church. Now, certainly there are, there are good reasons. Some people, in, even in our own church, are, how, are homebound because they are physically unable to get to church on Sunday mornings. That's understandable, and I think there is a particular grace that God gives. But for those who can, You have to ask yourself, how can I say that I belong to a church when I never assemble with the church? When the very word church means assembly. There's a church called the the Mayflower Church. It's not their original name, but it became identified as the Mayflower Church. It's a church that came out of China several years ago. And many of you know that China vigorously and perseveringly persecutes Christians. And this group of about, about 60 people in this community of believers, there were amongst, amongst many others who had raids upon them, and some taken away by the authorities, and all they wanted to do was just meet together. We just want to worship the Lord. We just want to be able to gather with each other and be able to see each other. And as a church, several years ago, they decided to actually make an exodus and leave their country. And I think right now, they, I think they're settled in Thailand temporarily. Sort of the, the future of, the, of their church is unknown at this point, I think. But just think about their sacrifice for a moment. They wanted to be together that much that they were willing to leave their country, leave their belongings, many of which probably left family members who could not understand the kind of sacrifice that they were willing to make. Leave it all because they wanted to meet together without having the government impede them from doing so. 
I don't think the passage here is giving us sort of a prescription or a commandment about how often the people of God should meet together. But their meeting together says something about how much they value the community that they have become a part of through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Growing up, I, I went to church Sunday, then there was Monday night prayer, and there was Wednesday midweek service, and then there was youth ministry on Fridays. Right? Four days a week, right? I was at four times a week, I was at church. And certainly as a, as a, as a kid, I'm sure I complained at times, but that was my life. I didn't know anything else. So for reading about this, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, right? many might say, wow, that's amazing. That is spectacular. That is wonderful. And yet, this is a very uncommon experience, perhaps for many of you. I personally would love to see the day when we have, say, a Sunday evening service and a midweek prayer service. It's one of the reasons why we encourage people to be a part of a community group because we just don't think, I just don't think that meeting one day a week on Sunday for an hour, 15, hour and 30 minutes is enough to be with God's people. What we see here is that this was not just a community, this wasn't a community of individuals, but it was a community of family members. Someone had once said that Christ saves us as individuals, yes, but he also saves us into communities. We need other believers to draw us back into the fold when we've gone astray. Other believers need us to encourage and spur them on. If we examine all the orders were given in the New Testament, one another commands dominate the passages. Living in the community of the local church then is necessary, not optional. For your growth in grace, we cannot simply obey one another's commands if we're not well around one another. And this is the way I've always viewed the assembling of God's people, whether it's on Sunday mornings, whether it's in a small group. I've always seen it or considered it as a means of grace. That when God's people come together, God intends to use our time together as a well for us to draw from whether it's strength, whether it's encouragement, whether it's grace. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. One of the reasons why Meeting together is so essential for the life of God's people is that it's intended to help preserve you and me in our Christian walk so that we might not be deceived and hardened by sin. So you and I, we work together and encouraging one another and we each other to each other, we can be that means of preservation in our life of faith. Fourth and lastly, what we see here is that this was a growing community. 
verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 47 concludes, and the people of God were, this community were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we see that they had some kind of witness to the outside, to those who were unbelievers. Many were filled with awe and reverence before the Lord as the apostles continued to perform these signs, signs to show that this are the last days, signs to prove that this is actually a work of God and not a work of man. And then we see towards the end that as this community of believers were praising God and filled with gladness and generous hearts and devoting themselves to these things and being characterized by these things that the Lord added to their number. They were having favor with all the people. People looked upon them and saw them favorably. And what we see, I think, here is that they, not only was their community visible to the outside world, but they also made their community visible, or they, they talked about their community to the outside world. Namely, telling them about the gospel of Christ, the one who harmonizes individuals, brings them into the community where they share together a union with Christ. This became a distinct community, and people noticed it, and people were told about it, and more were added to their number. I think one of the challenges of of, 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 of a small church is is the is the is the the feeling of, of family, which is is a very good thing, right? And that's what I I love about our church that it does really feel like family, but at the same time, is that when you get really used to one another, it becomes harder to think about those who are not a part of the family of Christ, we certainly don't want to see an unbeliever as sort of an intrusion to our unity. We don't want to see someone as sort of like a kind of stranger that doesn't quite jibe with the atmosphere of the church. We don't want that kind of attitude. And so while it is good and right to have a family feel, and it's something that becomes harder to maintain right, as, as the church grows, we don't want to get too used to the family feel to the neglect of not considering those who have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ who need the gospel and need the fellowship of believers. And while we should certainly maintain the family feel and get used to one another, there's good things about that, but we should pray that we would also be a community that is also used to growing as well. Notice the conjunctions, the ends in the passage. It tells us, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to certain things, and then also tells us that awe came upon those who are on the outside of the community because of the apostles, and they also had all things in common 
they share with one another, and they fellowship, they met together, they assemble together regularly. And then the very last conjunction, the last and in this section says, the Lord added to their number. So everything, every, all the other ones, all the other conjunctions, all the other ands had to do with man, had to do with the people. What did the people do? What did they devote themselves to? What were they characterized by? What was the response of the people who are not yet a part of this community? And the last thing was, what did the Lord do? The Lord was the one who added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And I think Luke was intentional in leaving that one for last. And I don't think it's intended to be sort of like formulaic, like you do this, this plus this plus this equals this. But I do think that it shows us the kind of community that God loves to favor and bless, the kind of community that is characterized by this sharing, by this commonality, by this assembling, by this devotion that when we are characterized by these things and continue to grow in these things, that we, I think, rightly can expect that the Lord will favor us and bless us and even use us to bring others in and add to the num- our number through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we can expect that when we do our part, that the Lord will do his what only he can do. The kind of community that we see here is the kind of community that only Christ can create and is the kind of community where Christ is at the center. And when the church devotes herself to these things and aims to be characterized by these things, that they are a means by which we hold on to Christ and Christ also holds on to us. Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every way into him, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part is working properly, Christ saves us into a community where we each become a part and each part then should work properly. And when each part works properly, we work with God and building ourselves up more and more grounded in love. And so what could this mean for you? as you consider, what does it mean for me for a part of the body to work properly? For some of you, it might mean engaging in a group, becoming a part of a community group, engaging with other believers throughout the week. But as we said earlier, this is a means of, for your own preservation. This is intended to be a means of grace for your life. For some of you, it might mean being more consistent. Perhaps it just might mean just being with God's people, being here Sunday mornings to worship and make much of Christ, to assemble with God's people and fellowship and serve alongside with the household of Christ. For some of you, it might be pursuing membership. And we at our church here, we hold membership very highly, but 
that being said, we don't believe that membership is salvific. But simply put, membership just simply communicates a formalization of a commitment to where we are committing with you to be for you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to funnel our resources and energies and time towards you and your life. And where you also in turn make a formal commitment to the church where you are saying, I'm committed to the church to funneling my energy, time, energy, and, and resources primarily to God's people in the church. For some of you, it might be serving, using whatever gifts and talents that God has given to you for the life of the church. For, the parts, for each parts to work properly, we must work together. Not only that, but we must all work by also just praying. Praying for the church. Praying for one another. And praying also that the Lord would add to our number. Praying about evangelism. Praying for the lost. Jesus Christ has saved us. And he saves us into a community. The church is a group, it's a community of the redeemed where Christ is king. And it's a distinct community, it is a compelling community. Is a community that is devoted, a community that shares, a community that assembles, and it is also a growing community. So let us each do our part so that we might continue to grow and be characterized by these things. Let us pray. Father, as we consider this, this passage that we have devoted ourselves to. Lord, what we see here is, strangely, there's, there's, no, there's no commandment here. There's no imperative. There's no, nothing here that says, thus is the Lord, you shall do this and that. Instead, what we see here is just an example what we see here is what the gospel produces. And even though there is no, there's no imperative or command in this passage, Lord, I do think that this creates a wonderful vision for any gospel preaching and gospel believing church. No church would be harmed in following this example, but only benefited and strengthened. Lord, so would you help us to keep this example in mind? Lord, help us to work together. Lord, I'm thankful for the ways in which our church is characterized by these things. Lord, it's not because of me or because of anybody else. This is the working of your Spirit for which we are so thankful for. 
But God, we desire for these things to become that much more vivid in our lives as a church. And that requires all of us to work together. So would you help us to that end so that we might make much of Christ and so that we might be benefited as well and so that you might graciously also add to our number. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand in the response of today's sermon. Let's sing one more thing, one more song. Amen. This is a this is a praise. Joyful, 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 we adore thee, God of
As your church, Father, I, I pray this morning, Lord, um, that you may lead us. Lord, thank you for your church. Thank you for, for Seacoast. I pray, Lord, that Seacoast Community Church may be devoted, may be a devoted church, Lord, eager to share, as we heard today, to assemble and to grow together as you intend to lead us, Lord, as a, as a community. God, may we, may we be united, Lord, as we seek fellowship and are nourished, Lord, in, in our gathering and in prayer. Bring us, bring us, Lord, to meet regularly and to be encouraged and edified when we do so. And help us, Lord, to grow as we seek to honor your call, Lord, to meet and to gather and be reminded, Lord, of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. In all these things, Lord, we ask and we've gathered and we've worshiped. And in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Um, one more thing before before we we can be dismissed. difficulties. It's our benediction, right? Amen. And it's out of Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. The Word of God says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Church, God bless you. Now you're dismissed. Amen.